This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dean Amal Andraus. Thanks for listening. I'm Jarrett Lay, a dual degree student in the Architecture and Critical Curatorial and Conceptual Practices program at GSEP. I'm speaking with Zeynep Salig Alexander in advance of her lecture, Modern Design Education, an Epistemological Account. Alexander is the third annual Detlef Mertens lecturer on the histories of modernity. Her work focuses on the history of modern architecture since the Enlightenment, and her forthcoming monograph, Kinesthetic Knowing, A History of Modern Design Education, presents the history of a kinesthetic knowing and argues that the theory of this alternative form knowledge was seminal to the development of modern design education. Welcome, Zainab. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. My first question is regarding your most recent article in uh, Superhumanity that was published this past fall, in which you argue that the early 20th century design education was imagined in schools such as the Bauhaus as a series of strict protocols for self-examination, wherein drawing exercises were understood as feedback loops for rationalizing and understanding the self. Um, in this article, you explain that it is essential to the is essential that to understand the goal of the Bauhaus, not as a specialized art education, but instead as a general education of the masses. How does the early 20th century concept of the self and its incubation through the design relate to contemporary, contemporaneous concepts of the public? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent question, but first of all, thank you for having me here. It's lovely to be doing this lecture and to be talking to you. Um, that's an excellent question. and. Um, what I tried to get at in that uh, article in Superhumanity more than anything else was actually the theological underpinnings of Gestaltung, that peculiar word mm -hmm. in German that signifies both self-formation and uh, form and also is frequently um, translated as design. And um, as I will um, try to explain this um, evening in my lecture as well, this was um, very much based on a reconfiguration of a model of self that was inherited from early 19th century uh, ideas of Bildung. Here's another untranslatable German word, which um, has uh, on the one hand to do with self-perfectibility of each individual and, um, and uh, on the other hand has to do with institutional instruction. Although the word Bildung may not sound familiar to us, the concept should really be because the idea of a modern research university came precisely out of this context in this particular instance out of uh, Humboldtian reforms in the early um, 19th century in Prussia. I find your question about um, the public very interesting because I think one way of thinking about how this idea of mass gestalting, as I called it in that particular essay, to contemporaneous um, ideas of the public is really a matter of um, um, who gets left out. So in the case of uh, the characters that I'm going to talk about um, tonight, you find this uh, epistemological program that gets implemented as a, you know, a curricula, really, at all levels of the education system. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a very um, um, self-conscious effort to model it for um, marginal subjects mm -hmm. of um, modernity. In this particular case, children, women, masses, and also Catholics, strangely mm -hmm. enough. I hope it makes sense when I explain it tonight. So in 
in a way, you could argue that both in the case of the early 20th century context that I'll be talking about tonight, and in the case of the early 19th century, where the idea of Bildung or the research university came out of, and in our present time, perhaps one way of thinking about the um, concept of public is negatively, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of who gets left out. And mm -hmm. somebody always gets left out, is my point. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So is the is there a way then we can almost speak of the production of a self then as a technique, as a technique specifically then for the production of a public in this context, and I guess in this case an exclusive public at that? Yes, I mean this is, um, I don't know if the word public comes up that much in mm -hmm. the early 20th context that I'm talking about. I mean in some ways this is, uh, this whole idea of kinesthetic knowing and bodily knowledge, if you look at it from one perspective, it's a way of prepping bodies for the labor force of mm -hmm. sorts, although it's never um, uh, explained in those terms in that particular discourse, it's always presented as an aesthetic um, discourse. I think when you look at a similar kind of discussion going on in the US, at the same time you will find that uh, prepping for the labor markets much more explicitly. That makes sense. So, um, do you see any um, contemporary logic for the production of the self in design schools today? Um, no, I don't think history works that way. I think um, you know, by making the claim that, um, in a way, the history that I will be talking about tonight, this idea of kinesthetic knowing, is mm -hmm. at the foundation of design education today, mm -hmm. I am not suggesting in any way that we are still um, exactly operating with that. Clearly, we have inherited some habits, as mm -hmm. I will try to argue. But that doesn't mean the self that um, was cultivated at the turn of the 20th century is the kind of self that is cultivated today. The techniques, I think, stay the same, but I think the same techniques can uh, produce different kinds of selves. And another question that comes up is, of course, what happens when, uh, for example, with the introduction of computational techniques that mm -hmm. are used today, uh, I, I think some of the techniques that I will be talking about tonight, about especially iteration and mm -hmm. protocols for controlling iteration, mm -hmm. actually strangely um, apply in uh, today's design world. That makes sense. So are there any other sort of um, specific technologies or protocols that you think have a common thread with the early 20th century uh, model that you've identified? Well, my argument with the Bauhaus stuff is that what we call design was ultimately a technique of introspection mm -hmm. that was inherited from the tradition of Bildung in the early 19th century, the same tradition that gave us the research university. And that tradition in itself, actually, it turns out, was inherited from pietism. Introspection was a very important part of this branch of Protestantism. Um, so the argument that I'm making is that um, there's a, almost a refinement of the technique within the confines of a, of a um, design school. And I think that introspective aspect of design, especially now that iteration has become such an easy thing to achieve with the help of computational technologies, I, I, I would call that a continuing threat for sure. Although the implications and political valencies mm -hmm. change as with everything else. Absolutely. Um, 
to to look at the context of this article for Superhumanity, which is of course a project produced by Eflux in collaboration with the third Istanbul Design Biennial, mm-hmm. Are We Human, which was up in the fall of 2016. Um, at the biennial, various installations dealt with the role of social media and smartphones in designing a new human or a new self. Did this provoke anything for your own research? No, I'm not that comfortable um, drawing a line between the material that I uh, work on um, and the contemporary mm-hmm. um, phenomena that surround us. Sometimes it's easy to find uh, perhaps what could be called pseudo-isomorphisms, mm-hmm. but that's not necessary. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. Sure. I mean, clearly, as in your very good question, the first question about public, that is a, mm-hmm. that is a common denominator, but I wouldn't put such a, um, such a direct um, uh, line of connection between the two. Um, turning then, as you mentioned earlier, you recently published an article neo, article titled Neo-Naturalism, in which you address the emergence of a data-driven evidence regime within architecture and architecture schools and the epistemologies that it structures. Um, you note specifically that an historical inquiry into the systems of knowledge structured by contemporary technologies of architecture and historical contingencies for the emergence of that knowledge offer the possibility of recovering architecture's political and ethical uh, mm-hmm. capacities. Is it, is it possible to describe the political efficacy that might emerge from such an inquiry? Oh, th- that would come out of uh, research. Um, um, yes, of course. I mean, I think my hope is that it would, but I'm worried. And this is, as I try to make clear, perhaps not so much in that particular essay, in another essay that I published in Harvard Design Magazine, that... Um, particularly this research agenda within the confines of architecture school, could very easily and I think very successfully and in ways that are very exciting take on a political agency. But unfortunately, I think what happens instead is, and I'm not speaking for um, everyone who does this, but um, it becomes a matter of uh, fulfilling tenure requirements for faculty. So I think it quickly... Um, loses its political agency. Is there a technology that you view as uh, that which most urgently demands the attention of historians and architects at this moment? Technology that I use. I use Word, Microsoft Word, and PowerPoint, (laughs) if you're that's working around. But I mean, I have a very um, um, generous understanding of technology. I mean, we are surrounded by technology. I'm sitting on technology Mm -hmm. right now and no, I'm wearing yeah. technology, so yeah. it's not as if, um, and I'm I don't use any social media. I don't, I'm not on Facebook. I don't do Twitter. I uh, I'm uh, if anything paranoid about those things. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, but at the same time, I'm very interested in the history of technology Absolutely. because it's everywhere. It's not just in you know our little iPhones. Certainly, and I'm I'm interested in particular because you note the the possibility of such an historical inquiry into technologies and its adjacent um, and embedded epistemologies as providing the grounds for a certain criticality within architecture production. So within that context, is there, I know that you've, that your research also delves specifically into some of this technological research. Is there anything that sort of has emerged you as some particularly critical technological sites? Well, I think anything can be a critical technological um, um, site. I mean, you're you're referring, I think, to my instruments project, yes. as it's informally known, which is coming out as um, um, edited volume, and um, 
there we look at certain techniques that have come to dominate um, design disciplines um, in contemporary discourses. So we have an essay on rendering, we have an um, essay on specifying, and we frequently find um, that um, where there's supposed to be rupture, there's continuity, where there's supposed to be continuity, there's a rupture. One of the most surprising things, I mean, if you um, are asking about you know, did you discover anything interesting? One of the first most surprising things we discovered as a group, because it's a very collective um, project, we basically met as a group four, five, maybe even six times, uh, sometimes publicly, sometimes privately, was that many of those things that we like to separate, think are separate from uh, technologies, those um, values that we would normally associate with a kind of humanism turn out to be after effects of those technologies. Mm -hmm. Let me give an example. I, um, uh, you know, my um, essay for that volume um, revolves around, uh, talks about the um, technology of scanning and one of my, the surprising uh, discoveries that I made um, was that at the very precise moment when scanning, which always um, assumes a discretization of the world into, uh, into uh, fragments, it's always at the moment of uh, the rise of a technology that a humanist value that is associated with it, in this instance, form and the human ability to recognize form also emerges. So uh, it's interesting, the relationship between technologies and these things that, you know, these humanist values that uh, we're having. So it's like a, identified as like a certain historical rupture of sorts. That it's is... a, it's emerged in almost every um, essay in one way or another. I think that was the most um, surprising discovery we made. That's fascinating. Do you have a? This is always the tricky question of like chicken or the egg. Do you imagine them as concurrent? I like to think phenomenon? that the we like to okay. The conventional story is we technology fragments us. This is like one of the most persistent um, myths of modernity, that somehow modernity has to do with um, a fragmented, alienated subject. I mean, there are other forms of alienation for sure, but this kind of selfhood that we associate with modernity, mm -hmm. it's actually the other way around. The only reason why we think the self should be whole and unitary is because of the emergence of these technologies that um, fragment. So in terms of the chicken-egg story, it's not a chicken-egg story. I'm saying that the, the human is an after-effect of these technologies, which is something that someone like Friedrich Hitler has already yeah. said. Yeah. Absolutely. So in a sense, the... the uh the uh, invention or the in the human becomes invented as a reciprocal concept to fragmentation to begin with so it's sort of right i mean the other thing that really fascinates me in especially contemporary technologies is the resurrection of certain enlightenment ideas i mean sometimes mm -hmm. i think when i'm reading especially when it comes to um i once gave a talk on this when it comes to um to uh, the idea of limitlessness mm -hmm. um I sometimes feel like um, people who are talking today are like 18th century thinkers. It's so um, uh, 
classic enlightenment mm-hmm. uh, thinking, uh, faith in limitlessness of knowledge, for mm-hmm. example. That I mean, just something as simple as I find that my students students think that everything is on the internet, that mm-hmm. it's this infinitely uh, expandable, um, comprehensive system that includes anything and everything, which bears some kind of a strange resemblance to this 18th. Um, uh, century impulse to uh, make an encyclopedia of the whole world, right? Mm. So there are strange resonances between uh, contemporary thinking and enlightenment thinking, and I mean enlightenment not in terms of um, you know continuous modernity, but really like 18th century so, enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> you note though in the article that that sort of um, can, enlightenment condition is distinguished um, in the contemporary through a sense of a dynamicism to that mm, to that noble mm, world, mm, mm. a natural world that is constantly right, flux. Right, right. And now almost, I remember because I, yeah. I wrote that a while ago. <laughs> but yes, that that's the that's the interesting thing because it's not your classic enlightenment in a way. Mm-hmm. It's always accompanied by uh, claims about dynamicism and emergence is a mm-hmm. is a word that is frequently used. Um, you know, this fascination with systems that uh, create um, uh, variety. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's a very um, clear architectural example of this, mass customization, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest uh, assumptions of this uh, myth about mass customization is that somehow there was standardization and then we surpassed that standardization and now we're in the almost Hegelian third um, um, phase of modernity where finally we are yeah. you know mass customizing when you if you ask someone like michael osman who has really worked on the history of this and this you know whatever i know about this i know really from him he says we were never standardized so um so so that's the value i think of going into the history of these things mm-hmm. because then some of the things we think we know we it turns out we don't really know certainly so yeah how does how do you believe that those sort of knowledge systems that you knowledge systems that you've just described sort of impact say the political efficacy of architecture right now how does it structure proposals for intervention for example right i mean it's not an easy question i don't know if i have an answer but i will say this um the architectural theory that um has been dominant in north america for now 40 years perhaps has been terrified of the instrumentalization of knowledge. So um, by that logic, a historian or a theorist should never instrumentalize knowledge. But in reality, knowledge is sooner or later always instrumentalized. So I think to start thinking about the ways in which it is really instrumentalized Mm -hmm. is already a conversation about how the political agency or the efficacy of architecture may be understood differently. Absolutely. I mean, this seems, in a sense, related to the urgency you locate of identifying a certain lexicon for dealing with those with those criticalities. Do you think there's any sort of uh, critical terms that have begun to themselves? I think that's themselves? an excellent question. One of the things that we wanted to do with the Instruments project, although we ended up not having time to do it, was to make a lexicon. Because it seems that and i i know this also sounds like a super enlightenment project but i frequently find and this is a very practical concern of mine i go to reviews and um a student puts up 
uh, her work and then I feel like frequently um, the jury does not quite have the language to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So it seems that we are not able to... Um, we haven't yet developed a language with which to understand the world that we live in. And this is something yeah. that, you know, John May, my co-editor um, for the Instruments uh, volume, has been working on. There's an inadequacy of language, and mm -hmm. it's something that we should seriously think about, for sure. Absolutely. And it seems like, and I'd be curious if you agree with this, that in fact, architecture schools are a critical site for searching for that language. And, oh, yeah. And yeah. perhaps in simultaneous in reading that as a lack of language, we can understand it as an inquiry into those possibilities. Yeah, I think architecture schools are great for many things. I mean, at a moment when, um, and I don't think, frankly, there's a crisis of humanities. I think there is a crisis of um, wanting to instrumentalize knowledge at research universities too quickly. Mm -hmm. I think um, architecture schools are interesting because uh, you can because nobody knows in the university what happens in an architecture school. In a way, you have the opportunity to, to slow things down and think mm -hmm. about them there. I mean, um, I, this is certainly true of my university, where there's a great deal of there's a great in this is in Canada. There's a great um, system of grants but that also means there's a great deal of pressure to produce for scholars to produce knowledge that will have an immediate policy use for example mm -hmm. so architecture school is one of those places where you can um, create space within the research university to do something that you couldn't necessarily do in the humanities department and an engineering department and so on so i think there's something really um, promising there for sure Prior to earning your PhD at MIT, you trained as an architect. Um, how does your own background in design education influence your analysis of epistemologies in that discipline? Well, that's very simple. So I went to a high school where there was a very rigorous humanities and sciences education. And then I arrived at architecture school, and I couldn't believe my eyes that... Um, um, you know, the, the, this higher education that I was now engaged in basically reverted in some ways to kindergarten. <laughs> you know, like you sit around cutting paper and yeah. making models. and um, So that experience certainly played a role in my, um, in my thinking about these issues. And um, I remember when I first went to the GSD, I was worried about my English. And I remember my advisor... Uh, my academic advisor, telling me that, um, he said, it doesn't matter, you speak the language of architecture. And I was like, what is that? You know, I'm not <laughs> sure I speak the language. Yeah. But so this idea that there's an alternative kind of language that somehow um, is unrelated to natural language or the you know, languages we use in everyday life, um, that struck me, I think, from the beginning as a peculiar thing. Absolutely. So the language, which is interesting because that really permeates across your own scholarship, dealing with and grappling with language as a site for understanding knowledge structures, etc. Right, except this kind of kinesthetic knowledge that I um, have you know, written this book on, um, it adamantly refuses to be about language. Yes, absolutely. Did you, did you see traces of the kinesthetic processes that you describe in your own design education? Oh yeah, it's all over the place. I mean, the way that you're, I mean, I was always, um, I was always guilty of talking too much. 
you know, despite the fact that English was my second language, I, I was told, I think, by a professor that I just had to shut up because uh, in some ways, maybe this is when I went to school, which really wasn't that long ago, but um, in some ways, um, it was more desirable to stand next to your drawings and be inarticulate. Oh yes, absolutely. That Those students seem to get themselves into less trouble than I do <laughs> by, you know, yakking on about yeah. my project. <laughs> but open up your questions nonetheless, I suppose. Well, I <laughs> hope so, who knows? Yeah, yeah. I'm not an architect anymore. <laughs> Um, well, that seems like a great place to conclude. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you. Really it was a pleasure. It. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.